0: I welcome everyone and uh, uh, I'm pleased to be uh, guest hosting for Jennifer Grossman today on this the 27th Atlas Society Ask. My name is Stephen Hicks. I'm senior scholar at Atlas Society and a professor of philosophy at Rockford University. Today we are joined by the prolific Victor Davis uh, Hanson and uh, we will not likely since uh, Dr. Hanson's busy schedule gives us only uh, 30 minutes with him get your questions, but if you uh, do have questions, please do put them in the uh, in the chat box uh, or in the comments section at YouTube, and we'll try to get to some of the questions if we can. Uh, Victor Davis Hanson is likely known to everyone here, an award-winning historian of political commentary, cl- uh, specializes in the classics and military history. He's currently a senior fellow in residence at the Hoover Institution, and he's the nationally syndicated columnist. He's uh, written an astounding 24 books, uh, in addition to a wide outpouring of articles on all sorts of topics, uh, Makers of Ancient Strategy, Persian Wars to the Fall of Rome, Second World Wars, Western Way of War, and then most recently, uh, a political piece on Donald J. Trump, uh, which covers his journey from being a businessman to the presidency. Welcome, Dr. Hansen. Thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, now the theme I want to explore the most is uh, the relevance of the, of the classics and the theme of learning from history. Those are mantras that uh, professors uh, and, and other intellectuals uh, like, like to sound widely, but going back 2000 years, 2,500 years, uh, what is of not only just perennial interest, but perennial relevance now of the classics? So we study politics, diplomacy, war, and conflict is a constant in human affairs, but what can we learn from the Greeks and the Persians, the, the Athens versus Sparta conflict, right, and and so on? What's the, what's the dominant lesson here?
1: I think the main uh, inheritance from classical culture of Greece and Rome is that human nature is fixed and unchanging, and it's predictable, therefore. And... and education, nutrition, science, all of that can improve the human condition. But so far, without the alteration of brain chemistry, they don't change human nature. So the ancients tell us that people are captive of their appetites, they they act in predictable ways, and they assume that as a given. And they call that the tragic way rather than the therapeutic way of looking at human affairs. Mm. It's, it's tragic in their way that we're ephemeral. That's a good Greek word for creatures of a day. We're gonna. We all have a short lifespan, and we try to cram as much in it as we can, and in a way that may or may not affect what happens to our soul afterwards. And so, I think that's the main thing. And the other is it teaches us an inductive way of thinking. We're not deductive in, in coming to preconceived ideas and then making the evidence fit, but rather we have an open mind. And after we examine empirically various phenomena, then we come up with a generalizing principle that explains them. Mm -hmm. And then finally, we try to be well-rounded in the Socratic sense of science, math, nature, the physical with the mental um, muscles and brain. And then these serve as reference so that when we try to come up with arguments or conclusions or observations, we can refer, we can, we have points of reference with Doric column, uh, Pericles, um, Sappho, the Peloponnesian War, the Persian Wars. And then from these lessons, they can enlighten, articulate, add, or subtract to the arguments we're making if we have a common mm. core of knowledge. Mm-hmm.
0: On the, the fixedness of human nature theme, uh, I think it's, in one sense, that's uh, certainly true uh, biologically. Does it hold at the cultural level uh, take for example your your work on the uh, the Athenians and the and the other Greek city states joining together to defeat the Persians. Was that not yes. uh, could not make a claim that that is a, a different direction for cultural evolution at that point? If you just looked at human history up to that point, everything is tribes, nomadic, then there's empires and everything is vertically directed, but we have these new experimental uh, Greek city-states, many of them are more democratic and more commercial and so forth, and uh, they succeed in uh, defeating the greatest empire at the time. And so human history does change from its many tens of thousands of years uh, 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 trajectory up to that point.
1: I don't think so. I think what changes there with the, Enlight- the Greek enlightenment, especially the Sophistic Revolution of the 5th century, there were a number of people who, in their intellectual arrogance, thought that by having a radical democratic culture to take the example of Athens, they could change human nature and that Athenians wouldn't be subject to the same appetites And yet, mm-hmm. as most people, that they had been altered or elevated. But yet, when you read the historian Thucydides, to take example, and you look at these key points in his dialogue of, at Milos or the revolution at Midlanium, especially how people acted during the plague. He says to us that that's a veneer, that people have pretensions of civilization has made them different than their innate self. Mm. And civilization is very important, but when it's stripped off by a plague or a war or a mass execution, then people revert to form. That is they take some body off of a pyre and put their own relative on because wood is scarce to burn bodies during the plague. Or they act in predictable ways of the strong dictate to the weak at Uh Milos. Not that he, he likes that, he's just suggesting that civilization is very precious and we have to realize that we're innately savage creatures and that won't change. But what can change is we can craft religion, government, protocols, tradition, shame, to sort of sand off the rough edges of what we are and to to exist in a civilized fashion. Mm
0: -hmm. To go uh, back a generation uh, previous to, uh, two generations previous to Thucydides, uh, one of the relevant lessons that we we think about now is that the Athenians and the Persians were freer than the, uh, uh, sorry, the the Greeks more broadly were freer than the, the Persians. And despite the fact that the Persians had this huge, massive army, they were able to defeat them. Is there a lesson about you know, the ingenuity, about the, the Greek way of doing politics and culture that, uh, that we can extract from that?
1: I think so, at least the Greeks thought so. I mean, we have all of these anecdotes that are canonized in Western literature, the 300 Spartans that uh, thermopylae, that law is their code, their nomos, that they, they don't follow a particular dictator or um, an authoritarian. They, they're they invested in a system, and that system is their own mutual self-interest as citizens. They're not subjects of an autocrat. Citizenship, is right. the polity of Greece. That's a new concept. Or when Aeschylus says that the rowers at Salamis chanted Eleutheria, Eleutheria, freedom, freedom, as they, uh, they rode into the uh, the vastly larger Persian fleet. The Greek sense was that freedom uh, gave them a moral imperative. It gave them an advantage of a spirit of core that the enemy didn't have. And then the consensuality. So when Themistocles wants to uh, bring in counsel or to debate the proper strategy at Salamis, or the, the Spartans don't know what to do about who stays and who goes at Thermopylae that you, when you get larger people into the equation up to a point at least, then you get better results on the back end. So there was a sense that their system of scientific inquiry rather than just superstition to explain natural phenomena or constitutional government or individual freedom, all of these put in economic rationalism, you put this together and it gave you not a sure victory or an insurmountable advantage, it just meant that all things being equal, that is things like logistics and numbers and weather and a lot allowance for a tactical genius, mm. say a Napoleon or a Hannibal, that you could still win because your system had innately more advantageous elements in it than your opponent, your non-Western opponent.
0: Yeah. Uh, Is the lesson then that other things being equal, it can give you an advantage, but if civilization is a precious inheritance, is it fragile? And even free societies can't necessarily sustain it very long. So yes, they did defeat the, uh, the Persians, but then Athens lost to Sparta, and Sparta was much more authoritarian. And then a couple generations, we have Alexander and so forth. So uh, should we be defeatist then on <laughs> the value of freedom in this conflictual world? No, I think once it's, once
1: between 800 BC and 400 BC, once these elements are introduced into the equation and that jump starts Western civilizations, as we know it, or Hellenism, and then it's cyclical and it's up to people. They at least now have the option, which they did not have before. They had an option of a glimpse of another way of existence and doesn't mean that they have a birthright to it they can lose it any generation and they did lose it under the hellenistic period kings but at least they had the option that for a while they could rule themselves rather than be ruled over by others but there was a sense very different than ours we feel that inequality is the great mortal threat to western society the greeks felt that it was affluence and leisure that what they call, I guess we would call it, the Romans called it luxus or decadence. But the idea that if you feed your appetites and you're not self-restrained by either your family or your religion or your community, and you do what's legal, but otherwise probably not ethical or moral, then a laxity or sort of a slothness comes into the uh, civilization. And and most poignantly, just to finish, people pose the question, why is it that 30,000 Macedonians can defeat the free city states in 338 at Charneia when they're vastly wealthier than 150 years earlier when their ancestors of just 17 city states defeated an army of 250,000 northerners coming from Persia. Hmm. Why did the why did the Persians fail when Philip and Alexander at Macedon succeeded when the Greeks were far wealthier that faced Alexander than the far larger forces of Xerxes. And the answer the ancients gave is that they had suffered a moral and ethical decline. That was very popular in the 19th century. Now it's written off as sort of, you know, declinism is kind of a joke, but I I think there was something to
0: the ancient exegesis. Yeah. Would you, uh, you mentioned the Romans along the way there, would you apply a similar analysis to the Romans? operating a great republic and many uh, uh, you know, high marks in, uh, in civilizational accomplishment, but then a, a kind of moral and ethical decline sets in, and that's the thing that sets them up for failure. Because was the striking thing about both the Greeks and the Romans is they, <laughs> they managed to sustain high water marks in civilization for a couple of centuries, and then they do decline. Is that an inevitability? I don't
1: know if it's inevitable, but they
0: the Greeks saw uh, civilization
1: of, on the polis and to a lesser extent the Romans to it in terms of the human body and aging process youth uh, maturity and then decline as you age and you get you're, you wear out and that can be renewed cyclically uh, it can obviously been renewed Rome was should have been over in the first century AD by the third century AD it had reinvented itself it should have been over it did a, a It ended in the West in the 470s, but it continued for a thousand years in the East. And so what they would say, um, and they being, I would call the Declinus authors of the first century BC and AD, Catullus the poet, Suetonius the biographer, Tacitus the great psychological historian, maybe Petronius the novelist is that they had conquered all of their physical challenges that had enough food, they had easy transportation, they had a uniform culture from the Atlas Mountains, you know, to the Danube, and from Britain to what is now Iraq, and they had no foreign enemies. But the problems were that they had failed to inculcate and continue the values that uh, that won them that empire and that that opulence and that affluence. That people were now not getting up at five in the morning. They were not sleeping at the ground. at um, on campaigns. They demanded a level of comfort that was incompatible with the very mechanisms that won them their comfort. And that, that's a lasting le- lesson, and we hear it all the time from an older generation to a younger generation here in the United States, for example.
0: So is it another way of formulating that hypothesis then, that it's not external enemies that are the biggest threat, but one's internal character as a society? these values and virtues need to be identified and transmitted from generation to generation? If you fail to do that, then you're setting yourself up for decline?
1: I think so. Um, I, I think if you looked at how the United States reacted to far greater existential threats from Germany, Italy, and Japan in World War II, or from the nuclear Soviet Union in the Cold War versus radical Islam in the 21st century, yet radical Islam did something that none of those nuclear and earlier formidable powers had done. They took out about 15 acres in the heart of New York and destroyed a portion of the Pentagon. Mm. And was that because they were so much brighter than Hitler, so much deadlier than Stalin? I don't think so. I think we and our laxity were not able to identify an existential threat to the United States for a variety of cultural restraints. And we just said, you know, We've gone beyond war. We've gone beyond the absolutism of good versus evil. We've gone beyond the idea that mm. Western civilization or Christianity is singular and must be defended. And so, yeah, I think that's the danger. It's always always internal, and just because somebody like uh, you know Oswald Spengler or Nietzsche or Hegel or Toynbee said so, doesn't mean it's wrong, even if they've gone out of fashion. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, so uh, that's to, to bring things uh, into the 20th and 21st century. Before we leave the, the classical era, though, is there one of your books that you would recommend as most relevant to uh, the, what lessons we need to learn from the classical era for contemporary conflict, war, diplomacy?
1: I think uh, I wrote a book called Carnage and Culture, and it was about. Ten elements, each identified by iconic battle that were part of the Western menu and explained why, despite population or territory or natural resources, the world we see today is mostly Western or Western eyes. And that is not an accident. There were certain elements of Western culture that made us dynamic. And then I had a collection of essays about war called The Father of Us All. And in it, I tried to explain that we should not be captives of the presence think that preemption is good or bad, or preventative war is by nature evil, or allies and multilateralism are always better than unilateralism or going by yourself. That these are just concepts and they only take on currency given the circumstances of the time. And very quickly, you know, I just read an article yesterday in The Atlantic by four distinguished colleagues of mine at Hoover, and they said that. The new administration will be far more multilateral and therefore it will be better in their foreign policy. I hope it's better, but there's no, I mean, there's no proof of that in history. Israel is one of the most unilateral powers in history, Mm -hmm. unfortunately for Israel. But it fights uh, from 19, in the last 73 years, its story is a history of fighting multilateral alliances, sometimes 10 or 12 Arab states the greatest multilateralist of all time was adolf hitler when he invaded the soviet union he had about 19 different countries Mm. uh eastern europeans Finns, italians spaniards uh moral support from the japanese the most unilateralist country was britain from 1940 uh in june until the invasion of the soviet union and it desperately wanted allies it had none and yet it it held out and defeated for those two years, its enemies. So what I'm getting at is that it's better to have allies. It's probably better than to be alone, but there's no historical proof that that's always true. It depends on who the allies are and what the alliance is like versus the freedom of action that can come in, ca- in the case of Unilateral. So what I'm getting at is I think we've got to get away from this idea that these modern terms are always good or always bad. And the ancients didn't think so. They just thought that each, each had advantages and disadvantages.
0: Yeah. So then it would become a strategic rather than a universal principle. Yes, I think so. Yeah. So, so back in the day, in classics time, we have Greeks versus Persians, we have Athens versus Sparta, we have the Macedonians, later the Romans and the Egyptians and so on. Uh, if we're surveying the high level strategic territory now that the U.S. finds itself in, the great powers, uh, what would you say about uh, the U.S., China, Russia, maybe Islamism, and Europe as the major centers? And we're going to talk about, you know, lateralism or multilateralism. Those are the dominant players.
1: Very quickly, obviously, China is 1.4 billion people. And the consensus was until 2016, they were going to rule the world i don't know why they thought that india has about the same size population nobody thought india was going to rule the world
0: Mm. but there
1: was obviously something different about a communist party hierarchy in beijing than there was a democratic government in india but there was sort of a managed decline was the mantra and nobody ever asked themselves why is it the united states with a fourth of the population can produce twice the goods and services Of China, and when you look at the standards of civilization past and present, who has energy independence, who has food independence, who has great research universities and the sciences, uh, who has the most stable and oldest constitution? The United States was ahead in every category of China, so whatever that pessimism came from, it was self inflicted, it was as if it was fated when it was actually a choice. I think we're out of that now, and we're saying to the Chinese. If you wanna be a member of the family of nations, you have to abide by commercial treaties and laws and patents and copyrights and financial uh, normalities. And we're gonna be held to account and we're in a position of strength and you're not. You're surrounded by Japan and Taiwan and South Korea and Australia. And we're surrounded by allies like two oceans and Canada and Mexico, you have the discipline. So I think that's changed and that's good. Case of Russia, we went from the paranoia of the left saying uh, that George Bush had ruined our relations with Putin and they were going to reset them very naively, given the thuggery of Vladimir Putin, until there was a Russian under every bed paranoia uh, after the election of Donald Trump. And it took 22 months and $35 million of Robert Mueller to prove there was no Russian collusion. But in the process, we did something that most of our strategists said you're never supposed to do. And that is make Russia a better friend to China or China, a better friend to Russia than either is to us. And we lost a valuable card in, in Russia. So we need to recalibrate that and deal with Russia as it is in a strategic sense to balance along with India and the allies of China bars of to balance rising Chinese power. As far as the middle East, we're in a great breakthrough there very quickly. Uh, for the first time in its history, Israel is not alone. And it's not alone for the most amazing development that many of the Gulf monarchies and many of the moderate Arab states are now actively on Israel's side because they share a mutual fear of a Persian, Shia, radical theocracy, and maybe soon to be nuclear power, Iran, that's sworn it would like to destroy all of them. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's a big breakthrough. And we've, Kind of gotten away from the previous administration that thought that was kind of cute. We would balance off uh, the uh, sheikdoms in Israel by saying, you know, you're going to do what we say or we're going to help Iran. That was very short-sighted. I think we're over that now. Finally, Europe, uh, it's, it's very important in human nature to think that people that you don't like can do you a lot of good and people that you like can do you a lot of harm. But if under Donald Trump, NATO is now paying much more greater percentage of its budget. About eight countries are meeting their 2% obligations. The NATO budget's gone up $100 million, even, even as he's accused by people who allowed that asymmetry to grow as a disruptor of the alliance. Nothing could be further from the truth. And finally, when we say, historically speaking, when we say EU, what do we mean? Well, if you talk to a European, they mean Germany, Germany, Germany. Germany is the country that dictates to Eastern Europe on immigration, to Southern Europe on payback of financial obligations, to Britain on getting out the Brexit get out and to us on NATO contributions. And this is on chain since 1870. This is the fourth Reich, if you will. 50% of Germans have a negative view of the United States that polls the most anti-American of any country in Europe. It runs a $70 billion trade surplus with us. And uh, the idea that we're putting 19-year-olds over in Germany to defend them from Vladimir Putin with, with whom Angela Merkel just cut a $10 billion natural gas is some, uh, deal, is something for concern. So hmm. our problem not with Europe or the NATO or the EU. It's really that we have a problem with German pressures on other countries to be anti-American. Hmm. And that's kind of radical, but that's the way I see it.
0: All right. If we take that survey, what do you think about this hypothesis? If we look at the twentieth century, it was primarily ideological conflict that was dominating national socialism, fascism, communism, and then capitalism and democratic republics. Uh, uh, and so we write the twentieth-century history in terms of ideological conflict being taken to the to the battlefield. Is that still relevant as we get further into the 21st century, or is ideology becoming less important and kind of broad traditional cultural groups or divides, right, and or nationalistic lineups? That's the benchmark.
1: Well, I think it's it's how we define ideology. Is radical Islam an ideology? I think it is. Is the Chinese Communist Party, for all of its uh, hyper capitalist veneer is it still a communist ideology? I think it is. Um, is Russia? Uh, I guess we would say a, a hyper nationalist dictatorship. I think it is national, hyper nationalist. So we still have the same problems that consensual societies, whether they're radically democratic or partially, you know, constitutional but oligarchic, but whatever they are, if they're constant, consensual and constitutional, they have, uh, they have tensions with anti-constitutional states. And I think that is ideological. And I understand there's r- racial and there's class uh, differences as well. But our problem right now in the world is that there are certain ideologies that feel threatened by American consumer capitalism or radical democracy or how we define ourselves in Europe. And part of it's out of envy, part of it's out of inability to match us economically or culturally and in our influence, but a lot of it's just, they don't believe in our system. They feel that it's not conducive to the human, to the human condition and the way that we, we feel it's necessary.
0: All right, so that then becomes a values issue about philosophy and the meaning of life, what it is to, to, uh, to put together a proper human life and then a culture that's going to, going to support that. We're trying to, uh, as you're suggesting in the case of China, work out win-win relationships and putting soft power pressure on them to conform to more uh, market and business-friendly conventions. Uh, But if things go bad, uh, what do you think about the hypothesis that many of the past lessons about technology and citizen soldiers and motivation fall to the wayside because of uh, new technologies that? artificial intelligence and robotics are transforming the ways in which the conflicts are going to be fought, that you know, eventually it'll be their computers and robots against our computers and robots. And it doesn't really matter what the composition of the citizenry is. A
1: couple things. I mean, if I could use a metaphor that I've used a lot. Um, I live on this farm from which I'm speaking. It's been in my family for 150 years. and. I saw the pump this morning was pumping about 1,600 gallons, a computerized pump that runs a sophisticated drip system. When I was a little boy, my grandfather would show me the hand pump that he grew up with. He was born here in 1890. It pumped three gallons a minute. This is pumping 1,600. But the water is the same. And the water of life is human nature. And the delivery systems, whether it's artificial intelligence or nuclear war, but what you just posed to me was the question, very popular in the late 40s, and they said that nuclear weaponry uh, had changed uh, the conditions of war forever because a side could be uh, destroyed. And we quickly learned that both sides have nuclear weapons and they're nullified and we go back to conventional warfare. We haven't had a nuclear weapon used since 1945. Mm-hmm. That's one thing to remember. So technology always has a counter response and then a counter response, which brings us to the second point, and that is who does the counter response better, a top-down or a grassroots society, a consensual society or authoritarian society, a society that brings in free thought and rational thinking or one that's bound by ideology. And so it's interesting when you mention China because I think we could go through the major developments of the 21st century and all of them uh, developed in the United States or within Europe, within Western societies. China has been parasitical. We're not sending thousands of spies into China are making them uh, uh, give us their technology for joint operative, they're doing that because they understand that their system for all the brilliance of the Chinese people is not conducive for original thought. And so that means they're always one step behind. If you look at their military agenda, it's basically to build a lot of Western ideas, uh, translate Western ideas into cheap weapons that will nullify Western weapons. So that means a $12 billion aircraft carrier can't get within 50 miles of the Chinese coast because there's 30,000 small little missiles, maybe a foot long, that can go six inches off the water at night and make big holes in the Mm -hmm. carrier for maybe $20 million. So they understand that they can nullify us uh, intervention in their air and water spaces to protect our allies. On the other hand, they can't venture anywhere close to Hawaii. They can't project any power in the Caribbean. They're trying and they're failing about it. So for all of our problems, uh, we're the ones, we being Westerners, who come up with the technology first. And it's just a question of who can adapt it and formulate it and produce it the most effectively and cheaply. But you got to have the idea first and we're ahead of them. And we will be ahead of them as long as our system is based on a meritocracy.
0: Okay. Uh, Mindful of your time, let me put one more question to you then. If we are currently in the lead and we have the the cultural resources to sustain that lead, and then the earlier point that uh, civilizations tend to defeat themselves by losing uh, their self-confidence, losing their character, uh, is our greatest enemy then uh, our, our own selves So we have Many subcultural movements that seem to be filled with uh, guilt about who we are, self-doubts, uh, skepticism about values, everything is equal. Or, and or if we think uh, you know, many of the successful free societies previously were smaller, uh, but the United States now has you know, this huge sprawling uh, uh, geographic and cultural space and so many people feel disengaged from it. Uh, is, is then our, our internal uh, hollowing out the biggest concern that we should be facing?
1: I think so. I think the combination of instant information, social media, computerized knowledge retrieval, and it gives us so much information, and many of us in the media, it's not uh, substantiated in fact, and it gets people very, it's sort of like the Western lynch mob that shows up at the sheriff's in fits of frenzy, cancel culture, statue toppling. But what we're really getting at in all of these, these worries that we're having about the modern or the postmodern age is that uh, the United States, as Tocqueville said, had a big challenge. And that is, most people would rather, as Tocqueville said, be equal and poor then better off and see some people way better off Mm. and that means that if you have an absolute meritocracy and you allow people of different luck inheritance health natural ability whatever and some people are going to excel how do you how does the society channel that energy do you kill them do you steal from them do you destroy their initiative or do you put on uh cultural pressures to say you know what we're going to let you make money, but we're going to tax them, or we're going to want you to give, we're going to put pressure on you to give to charity or to your church or to act in a way that's beneficial to others. That's our system. And that's why it's been very successful, but unlike socialism or communism, what's the mess we see in Cuba or Venezuela or the former Soviet union, even, even China, but that's the big challenge we're having because with all of this information passed off as knowledge and it's, Retrievable on your iPhone. We're getting a lot of people in the United States that says equality on the back end, not on the front end. Quality of result, not a quality of opportunity. And when that happens historically, then to enforce a quality of result, the government has to get larger and more powerful, and either force, or coerce, or kill people to make them equal. It's always happened in history. And so when I see people saying we're going to have this percentage of women or this percentage of this racial group and not that racial group or this gender oriented group, then what it's really saying is that we're not going to be racially or gender blind and we're not going to bring out the best in us. We're going to change the system so that we get a preconceived result. And to do that, we need more power to silence dissidents and we accept that the end result, whether we measured in GDP or appurtenances or innovation or technology, will not be as good as it otherwise would be for everybody. But it would be worth that because we're all going to be a little poor. Yeah. And that's better than all of us being a little wealthier if right. a lot of us are really wealthy. And I think wow. that's our greatest challenge today, yeah. this equality of result mandate that we see in the the, the radical transformation of I think Democrats into progressives. And I know that people have said the Republican Party is changing, but it's kind of going the other way. It's kind of going into a middle-class workers, nationals, populist party, whereas the Democrats are coming into a, an elite, wealthy, just give me the power and as platonic guardians, we'll give you Utopia, Dash, or else.
0: Yeah. So it's a values battle as always. All right. Well, that 34 minutes went uh, flying past and I do thank want to you. thank you, Dr. Hansen, for uh, for your insights and for your for your time. Thank uh, you. A great pleasure. Uh, thank you to the audience for joining us uh, today. Uh, we did not get to questions, unfortunately, but we will be uh, keeping those in mind and uh, with respect to future programming. And if you did like this uh, interview and any of our other materials, please do please do uh, consider making a tax deductible donation at Atlas uh, one more announcement. Uh, next, Atlas Society asks will be with Atlas Society trustee Frank Brooks. That will be next week, and Jennifer Grossman will return as your host. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye for now. Thank you.